0: All right. Good morning. If you would go ahead and open up your Bibles to First Samuel seventeen. If you see Second Samuel, you've gone too far. Turn back over to First Samuel. All right. Do you remember where we left off in the Book of Judges, there were the, these last words here at the end of the book. <clears throat> in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Hey, real fast. I think this mic's picking me up if you want to try to mute that. Thanks, bro. <clears throat> Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So what that means is the people of God were intermarrying Canaanites, they were worshiping their gods, they were killing each other over stupid quibbles, they were even going out into random fields and snatching up women and taking them for their wives. It was the worst of times, and it was the worst of times. Well, coming out of the time of the judges, the people began demanding a king. They wanted a strong, capable man to take the helm someone who, who would organize the people, who would lead them in battle and, and fight against the Canaanites who were among them. They wanted a man's man. But God warned them that what they were asking for was not really what they wanted. They say they want a king, but you don't want one. He's going to rule according to human wisdom. He's going to take your family. He's going to tax you. It's not going to be so great. But the people were persistent. We want a king. God, give us a king. So God gave them a king. And then he told them the most important thing. A good king is going to follow me. and He's going to lead you in righteousness to follow after me as well. Enter Saul. 1 Samuel 9, 2 reads, And there was a man whose name was Saul, a handsome young man, There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. On paper, he had all the goods. He was the Brad Pitt of Israel. He's tall. He's capable. He's a warrior. So he's anointed king. And things get off to a decent start, but a pattern begins to emerge. Saul doesn't listen to God. Saul does things his way. He's always playing the part of the politician. The people say jump, and he says how high. Eventually, Saul's rejected as king. The Lord says to him in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept. What the Lord commanded you. It's a sad day in Israel. But just who is the man who is after the Lord's own heart? Ah, here he is Eliab, the oldest son of Jesse, David's oldest brother. He's tall, he's handsome, he's the Brad Pitt of Israel. And no, no, no. The Lord said to Samuel, he's the one who's doing the anointing do not look on his appearance. Or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So if the king isn't tall, strong, and handsome, who is it? Enter David, the youngest son of the eight boys of Jesse, ruddy-cheeked. Small, steeped in the aroma of sheep. And the Lord said to Samuel, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. The story of David versus Goliath is the beginning of David's journey from shepherd to sovereign. I want you to keep a lookout for three key ideas. As we go, David's zeal for God's honor motivates him to pursue the battle with Goliath. David's faith causes him to speak and act with incredible boldness. And ultimately, it is God who delivers Goliath into David's hands. My hope is that God will use this time to help us to be zealous like David to have faith like David and to give glory to God like David. To that end, let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for the privilege of being able to open up your word. I pray, Lord, that you would be with me, that you would help me. And I pray, Lord, that the hearts of your people would be ready to receive the food that you have for us. Would you do it? And glorify your name. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Four points for you this morning. Point number one, the challenge. Point number two, the confidence. Point number three, the conflict. Point number four, the connections. So, point number one, the challenge. The Philistines have been a thorn in the side of Israel from pretty much the first moment they stepped foot into the promised land. There's a fight going on, pretty good chance that the Philistines are involved. So here we have Israel and the Philistines, their battle again. They're drawing up the battle lines. Each camp takes their position, one on one hill, the other on another hill, and then this big valley is open beneath them. And as armies take their place, a man from the camp of the Philistines ventures out into the valley. His name is Goliath, the namesake of giant spiders and huge roller coasters. The Israelites have never seen a man like this before. He stands at nine and a half feet tall. He makes Dan look like he's short. (laughs) He's decked out in bronze. Uh, Armor is, is covering him from head to toe. His chest piece weighs, alone, 125 pounds. He has this huge spear with a weaver beam this thick with an iron spear on the tip of it that weighs a ridiculous 15 pounds. Goliath is here, and he was born and bred for one purpose, to kill. So he bellows out in verses 8 through 10. Look there. He cries out, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be servants, shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy, meaning I mock, I deride, I dishonor. I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. So the Philistine spits in the direction of God and his army. The challenge is made. One-on-one combat. Any takers? Look at verse 11. Look at Saul and Israel's response. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now keep in mind, it's not like the Israelites were a bunch of sissies. These guys are warriors. They are cold blooded killers. They've been fighting since birth. They know battle. They've seen death. So the fact that they're afraid that really says something. It says something about how huge Goliath is. And the truth is, from a human perspective, there's no way that you could kill Goliath in one on one combat. It's impossible. They should be afraid to face him in their own strength, and they are afraid. But good news. This is what leaders are for. They've asked for a king. So good, we have a king. Go to him. He's tall. He's battle-worn. He's better looking. Surely Saul will step up and defend the honor of the Lord and deliver the people of God from Goliath. So you can almost imagine, right, like all of the people of Israel in the camp all turned to look at Saul. And they are expecting to see him with one foot already in one boot, this battle-worn, uh, fierce look on his face like I'm going to go face Goliath. But that's not what they see. He's sitting there. And the king is trembling, just like the rest of them. The people wanted a, a king like Saul for moments just like these. And he completely fails them. And in a sense, you can't blame him. He would be marching to a certain death. He doesn't want to go fight Goliath. It's not appealing. Based on worldly wisdom, if Saul, their tall warrior king, he's derelict in his duty and he can't go fight Goliath, then who can go fight Goliath? What are they going to do? So for 40 days, the Philistine goes on and on. Every day, walks out in the valley. He mocks Israel. He trashes the Lord's name. He curses them in the name of his false gods. And the people of Israel and the king, they just watch. They just, watch just let it happen. He just drags the name of God through the mud day after day, and they do nothing but tremble. And it's a disgrace. But God, he's not sitting on his hands. He has a champion. He's waiting in the wings. Which brings us to point number two the confidence. Went to the confidence. Sometimes God's providence is big and unmistakable. Other times, the most mundane and routine tasks end up being the most significant ones. So, friends, remember, God is behind all of them. He is behind the big things and the boring things. And our story is we see what we might call the casual providence of God. David's three eldest brothers, they're out in the battle. They're on the front lines. So David's dad comes to David and he says, hey, I got some chores for you. (laughs) You're the youngest brother, you you gotta do stuff like this. He says, take some cheeses and some grain and head out to your brothers and give them some supplies and check on them and come back. Let me know how they're doing. Boring stuff, but David's gotta do what he's gotta do. However, in God's providence, David gets there just as the armies are going back out to draw up on the battle lines. So David stops what he's doing, and he runs to the battle lines to check on his brother, brothers and see how they're doing. And as David meets up with his brothers, just at that moment, while he's doing his chores, Goliath comes out in the valley, and he begins mocking and defying Israel and going on just as he had been doing before. This is not a chance meeting. I love the end of verse 23. Look there. As he's in the valley, and David heard him. Those four words are as heavy as Goliath. I can just imagine as the author pins that, he's grinning from ear to ear, thinking, You've messed up now, Goliath. You could talk trash about Israel and their God in front of the Israelites and in front of Saul. But David's heard you now, and now that David's heard you, you've got a fight on your hands. Goliath's words, they light a fire in David's belly. God's honor is being slandered right in front of him, and unlike the rest of Israel, he's not going to take it. He's not going to stand for it. It doesn't matter what it costs him. He will risk his life. He will go fight Goliath. David would rather be smashed like a cockroach, then stand idly by it's his God is dishonored and not given the glory that he deserves. Man, to have that kind of zeal, to have that kind of passion and enthusiasm for the honor and the glory of God. I want that kind of zeal. The men around David start to chatter. They talk about rewards of riches and being married to the king's daughter. So David decides to play along, right? So look at verse 26. He says, "Uh, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine? I'd like to hear about that. But it's not the answer to that question that he's really interested in. It's not about the rewards. He's seeking an occasion to to gain an audience with Goliath so that he can fight him, so that he can put a stop to the maligning of God's name. Which is why he goes on to say in verse 26, What shall be done for the man who kills his Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? <laughs> Some fiery language from our little shepherd boy. Right? This is the first of three major, major speeches from David in this chapter. We're going to see the same main ideas in each one. David is zealous for God's honor. And he has this incredible faith that God will deliver him and all of Israel. So let's break down this first speech. David doesn't care that Goliath is huge, that he has this big spear. What he cares about is that he's uncircumcised, which is kind of weird. Right? It's not usually what you think about before you go fight somebody. The point, though, is that David doesn't judge this Philistine according to his weapons, according to his outward appearance. He judges this Philistine based on his spiritual position. Sure, he's huge. He's gnarly. He wants to kill some Jews, but the fact that Goliath is uncircumcised means that he is not part of the covenant people of God. He's no son of Abraham. This is just another puny, godless, uncircumcised Gentile. And this puny, uncircumcised, godless Gentile has the nerve to reproach Israel, God's people. they <laughs> thinking to himself. didn't God tell Abraham that I will curse those who curse you? Didn't God say that they will come at you from one direction and scatter in seven? Didn't he say that he will destroy the enemies that come before Israel and deliver them into their hands? Well, that's true, and it is true. David says, I don't care what he looks like. Why are we letting this guy run his mouth? Not only is Goliath running his mouth about Israel, but he's running his mouth and defying the living God of Israel, who is their head. God has so connected himself to the people of Israel That to insult God is to insult, or to insult Israel is to insult God. And David feels that. David feels that to insult the armies of the living God is to insult his God. And since God takes it personally, David takes it personally. That's what it means to have a heart that is after God's own heart. David has a knack for loving what God loves and hating what God hates. And God loves his glory. And so David loves God's glory. To speak against his glory, David takes it personally. And then finally, David reminds us that he is a living God. He's not a chunk of, of wood. He's not a piece of stone. He's alive. He is a person. And he will not let you defy him. Goliath. No one can, especially not an uncircumcised Philistine. So David's zeal has caused him to speak up, to pick a fight with Goliath, and his faith has caused him to speak with this boldness and his confidence. Now, David's, elder, David's eldest brother Eliab, he hears David's speech, and he is not the least bit impressed. Eliab actually becomes angry. And he tells David, why don't you you go back to your few sheep out in the wilderness? Why don't you stop being a little upstart? You're just out here looking for blood. You're just looking for something to uh, make for an exciting Thursday. Stop being a brat. Why don't you go home? You see, before David faces Goliath on the battlefield, he has to face this Goliath of contempt in his brother. And later he's going to face this, same Goliath of contempt, and Saul. The world looks down on David. Eliab thinks he's just a smelly, punk kid. Saul thinks he's just ignorant. He's going to go get himself killed. Goliath looks at, at David like he's just a hunk of meat. And I, ironically, these men, who in the eyes of the world are wise, strong, powerful, they're more esteemed than everybody else, they're looking down on a shepherd boy who is ten times the man that they are. And they don't see it. They don't see it at all. David doesn't let Eliab stop him. Eliab can look down on me, but I know what I'm doing. So he continues speaking up for God's honor with a heart full of faith. So like gossip in a small town, uh, word about David's boldness quickly makes its way to Saul. So Saul summons the man who is... Uh, the talk of the town, <laughs> and we can imagine what he's expecting. He's going to see someone come through the tent. This big, strong, ruthless, chiseled champion of Israel—he's going to come and face Goliath. But to Saul's dismay, who comes through the tent is just little David. It's a little shepherd boy, and before Saul can even say anything, David starts talking. Verse thirty-two. He says, "Let no man's heart fail because of Goliath." Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. So Saul, you know, he tries to dissuade him, maybe not too much, but he tries. David, he isn't having it. So so look at verse 34 and following, starting up the second speech. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear, and he took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and I struck him and I delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. So in the second speech, more of the same, zeal for God's honor, faith, courage, so what's he saying? You know, being a shepherd, it may not sound like much. You know, just sit outside, play with the sheep. Every once in a while, he might have to wrestle a lion or a bear, no big deal. David has experienced all kinds of danger out there in the wilderness. Goliath isn't the first big, hairy monster that he's had to kill. And so David is confident that what the Lord has done for him in the wilderness of Judah, he can do for him here in the valley of Elah. But be careful how you read this text. Okay, David is not saying that he is so masterful and skillful. He's not boasting about his exploits and his ability. If you, if you understand that, then, then you're misunderstanding the entire point. Look at verse 37 again. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Okay, so now we see. Now we see David's strength. It's not himself, it's God who delivers him. He can defeat any of his foes, especially this Philistine. God has piled up lions and bears in front of David. What's it to God to, to throw Goliath on top of the heap? It's nothing. Nothing to God. And that's the point. David is confident that God will win the battle. And so he's pointing away from himself and his ability. He's pointing to God who deserves all of the glory, not himself. So, after con- some consideration, David thinks, thinks over, or sorry, Saul thinks over what David says. He says at the end of verse 37, Go, and the Lord be with you. Now, we don't know what's going on in Saul's heart. <laughs> but I doubt he said that thinking, you know, David's a good dude. He's a, he's a young, faith-filled warrior. Go go fight. I, I believe in you. <laughs> no. Instead, actually, it's more like dad crouched in the corner of the room, home invader comes and says, go get him, son. <laughs> go, go fight him. I'll be watching from right here. I mean, it's shameful, right? This is, this is completely wrong. But at least Saul isn't going to send David into the fight without some battle gear, right? You know, he's he's going to he's going to give him a little pistol to go fight him. So Saul tries to give his armor and his weapons to David. But an interesting thing happens here. The, the author points our attention to the fact that the gear doesn't fit. The armor sits on him all wrong. It's too heavy. Perhaps it pinches David as he walks. Maybe it, maybe it cuts into him as he tries to move. I think the author is trying to do something here. He's trying to paint this powerful image. Saul and Goliath, they're similar in some respects. You know, they, they trust in bronze. They trust in big weapons. They trust in their strength. They pursue greatness according to the world's standards. But the world's standards that seem to fit on Saul and, David, and and Goliath, they're burdensome to David. He can't wear them. They don't fit on him. The old king did things a certain way that won't work for the new king. The new king isn't going to be suffocated by the world's criteria for what makes a man a man. He's not going to try to fit into everyone's opinions about how he should act nor is he going to disregard God's commands in order to pursue his own definition of greatness. So David, he takes all that stuff off, and he puts on his shepherd's garb. He goes and grabs five stones from a brook, and he heads back out to face Goliath with just a wooden staff and a sling. This king, he's dressed in weakness and humility and he's dressed in something that no one else can see, especially not Saul and Goliath. He's dressed himself with the Holy Spirit of God. He has everything that he needs to win this battle. So this much is obvious, though. David is going into the battle in the eyes of the world with less than ideal equipment. It's sticks versus spears, bronze versus cloth, Who's going to win? The stage is set. Both armies are looking on with bated breath. Which brings us to point three, the conflict. As Goliath approaches David, he can't believe what he's seeing, just like Saul, right? You sent a kid to fight me? And you've armed him with sticks? Look at verse 42. This is, this is what he thinks is going to happen. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, meaning he didn't consider David worthy of his time or consideration. First Eliab, then Saul, now Goliath. Nobody is impressed with David. And so he says in verse 44, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then comes the last of David's three major speeches. Let's look at it together. Verses forty-five through forty-six. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines estate to the birds of the air. Into the wild beasts of the earth. Man. So much zeal. Fighting for the name of the Lord of hosts, for the God of the army of Israel. And so much faith. It's one thing to talk a big game from a distance. Anybody can do that. But now that he's in front of Goliath, he's not changing his tone. In fact, he's really amped it up. I mean, he's he means what he's saying. And the reason he can do this is because it's not complicated to David. Goliath is armed with a spear. David is armed with a living God. He is completely confident. He has brought a bazooka to a spear fight. (laughs) He's going to win. But if we only notice David's zeal in his faith, if we only say, have zeal like David, have faith like David, then again, We've missed the main point of the story. And we've missed what David is saying. We must recognize that David is pointing away from himself and giving all of the glory to God. Look at verse 46 again. The Lord will deliver you, feed you to the, the wild beast. And then he says, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves Not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. God will get the glory. The earth will know that God is with Israel. Even the doubting Israelites who are watching on, even they will see that he is God. Even they will see that he doesn't need worldly wisdom to carry out his purposes. He doesn't need the army of Israel. He doesn't need the eldest brother. He doesn't need the tallest, and most handsome king. He doesn't need bronze plates or iron spears. He doesn't need your good looks. He doesn't need your brains. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need you to get it all together. He doesn't need you to figure it all out. He doesn't need you to get all of your ducks in a row. God doesn't need your opinions. He doesn't need your approval. He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need sophisticated philosophies. He doesn't need church growth gurus. He doesn't need you to train 1.1 million pastors. He doesn't need you to heal the sick and cast out demons. He doesn't need worldly wisdom, and He doesn't need to meet any worldly standard. God is running everything just fine, thank you. He can defeat giants with a stick in the hands of a little boy because he's God, because he deserves all of the glory and the honor and the praise, period. That's the point of the story. You know, he doesn't need those things. Let me tell you what he wants. He wants you to have zeal for his name like David. He wants you to have faith like David. He wants that whole assembly in that valley and you here in this local church to see him and honor him as God Almighty. When the Philistines arose, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank deep into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. <laughs> and the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, pursued them all the way into their cities, into their territory, so that the wounded Philistines fell in the way from Sherem as far as Gath and Ekron. And so God glorified his name by delivering Israel from the hand of the Philistines through the zeal and the faith of David. Point number four, the connections. At the beginning, I said I hope this text helps us to be zealous like David, with faith like David, as we give glory to God like David. So to finish up, I just want to connect that. I want to connect those three ideas to our lives. So first, be zealous like David. The Lord was seeking out a king, right? One who was after his own heart. And as we've already explained, that means that he wants someone who hates what he hates, who loves what he loves, someone who loves his glory and honor. And David was that king. He was so zealous that he put his life on the line. Now, chances are, chances are, God is not asking you to stand up and go fight an uncircumcised Philistine with a sling and a stone somewhere? Probably not. So what does it mean then for us to be zealous like David for God's glory? I think it's pretty simple. It's this. Do everything you possibly can to honor God with your life, even at great cost to yourself. Okay, so turn, if you would, to Titus 2, 11 through 15. Titus chapter 2, 11 through 15. You were saved to turn away from sin so that your life would honor God and make him look good. what he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself, a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. The holy life is the God-honoring life. When you live righteously, only then will you make God look good. God did not save you. So you would go back to doing the old things and living the old way of life again. He saved you so that you would be pure, self-controlled, and upright. And not only that, but that you would be zealous for those things. You would hunger and thirst after righteousness. God wants you to have the kind of mentality that you would rather pluck out your eye and cut off your hand than sin against him and cause him to not look great. Whether your sin is small or Goliath-sized, we must fight it to the death. If your dumb phone, or sorry, if your smartphone, which is dumb, if your smartphone is leading you into sin, downgrade to a dumb phone. If you're tempted towards substance abuse, pour it down the toilet and flush it and put it where it belongs. If your heart is full of pride and anger, selfishness and anxiety and whatever else, take it to the Lord in prayer. Ask Him to help you fight your sin. If you're storing sins in your closet that you don't want anybody else to know about, it's time to bring it to the light. Go tell a trusted member of this church so that you can crush that sin before God and honor Him with your life. And all these things, remember Paul's words from Romans twelve eleven. He says this, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Do not be lazy in your battle against sin. A God-glorifying holiness is not going to happen passively. You're going to have to go into the battle. You're not going to wake up one day and just find that Goliath has just wandered away. Your sin's going to be there unless you face it. It's going to be a dogged, knockdown, drag-out fight. And if you are anything short of fervent and zealous for the holiness and the glory that that gives to God, then you're going to fall prey to your sin. You're going to be casual. You're going to treat it like a pet, and God will not be honored in your life. David's zealousness for honor meant that he was going to fight Goliath whether he died or not. So also, let like your zealousness for the honor of God cause you to go and fight your sin. Secondly, have faith like David. Where does David's confidence and his faith come from? So when we say that David had faith, like, like faith in what? What do we mean? And the answer is this. David has faith in God's word. When God says something, it is faith. So, and what he learns in God's word is that God will not give his glory to another. He knows that he's all-powerful, that he created the universe with a spoken word, that he flooded the earth, that he delivered the Israelites from Egypt, that he knocked down Jericho with a trumpet, that he conquered the Midianites with 300 men and no swords, and on and on and on. David also knows that God is good. He is full of kindness and mercy and tenderness, and that he is ever present with his people to do them good and to hear them and to be with them. He's like a father to Israel. He's like an ever-faithful, present husband. And through God's word, David knows that God, he is jealous for his glory that he will not give his glory to another, that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is God. These things were settled in David's heart so that when Goliath came, he wasn't afraid. So what about you? What are you afraid of? Are you afraid of your sin? Are you afraid that it's mastered you and you can't win the battle? Are you afraid of death? Is that terrifying to you? Are you afraid to speak up about the gospel with your friends or employers or family? I don't know what you're afraid of. But I'm not asking those questions so that you'll feel guilt about being afraid, because the truth is, life is full of scary things. There are reasons to be terrified. But if we're going to have faith like David to still face fearful things, then we must prepare our faith like David. That's the key. David could face scary things because he knows what God is like, because he goes to his word. So that's the next question. You who are afraid, and that's all of us, do you know what the word of God says about God? Do you make time to study it? Are you attentive during sermons? Are you attentive during small group? Are you thinking and meditating on the word of God after you leave? And do you allow these things to challenge you and your emotions? Do you expect to be changed by the word of God and made it uncomfortable about what you currently believe when you come in contact with his word? The faith to faith Goliath was built up before the battle and it's the same with us but that could still feel kind of like a burden. You know, I mean, I I can't perfectly know God and have perfect faith and never be afraid. And I feel that. So I also want to encourage you. It's not only that we should cultivate our faith, which we should, but remember that the fundamental strength to have faith, it's not about how much we have, but it's about the object of our faith that matters most. Jesus told us, A mustard-sized faith, mustard-seed-sized faith, is enough to move mountains. You can do incredible things. So you have little faith. Remember, God is your God. The Holy Spirit was on David. The Holy Spirit lives in you. Even though you only have that much faith, he's in you. He's empowering you to fight right now. If He is in you and if He lives in you, then you can have faith and you can face things that are fearful. Can He not deliver you from the lion and from the bear? Can He not deliver you from Goliath? Can He not deliver you from death and sin? Can He not deliver you from anything? Yes, He can. So, pray with me. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Thirdly, give glory to God like David. As we mentioned, David is quick to point out the battle is the Lord's and that God is the one who will get the glory. But I want to focus on how God goes about getting all the glory in this text and what that means for us. Do you guys remember God's philosophy of ministry? We talk about that a lot in this church. Means that God is doing everything in such a way that he maximally uh, maximally glorifies himself. So we clearly see that in this morning's text. The wisdom of the world prioritizes the biggest, the tallest, the strongest, the smartest, the best looking. But God doesn't see as a man sees. The Israelites, they look at Goliath and they tremble while God laughs. And these same people, they look at David and they laugh. But God sees a mighty warrior king. The thing is, God loves that. He loves using the weak and the foolish things in the eyes of the world to bring them low, to destroy the strong and the wise. He does it constantly throughout the Bible. He does it even today through my life and your life. And the reason he does it is because the world can't help but see his glory when he does this. The people will see that there is a God in Israel. So consider, brothers and sisters, that not many of you are wise. (laughs) Not many of you are strong. Not many of you are good-looking. Not many of you have money and power in the eyes of the world. So what are we to do? Do we pursue those things? No. God has you right where he wants you. He wants to use you to glorify his name. So prioritize what he prioritizes. Cultivate a heart that loves what he loves, that doesn't judge man according to his appearance, but according to his heart, according to his zeal and his faith. So be the weirdo who makes time to pray and prioritize his church. That's fine. Be generous with your money. Lay down your life for the sake of others so that people are like, what are you doing? And God may use that to help them see his glory, that yes, there is in fact a God in that person. And they will worship him. Fourthly and lastly, I want to sneak in one more thing. I would be remiss if I didn't say anything about the Christ connection. So in one sense, David is an example of how we should live our lives. Be zealous like David, have faith like David, give glory to God like David. We should strive for those things. But in reality, We aren't Davids trying to face off against our Goliaths. Do you know who you are in the story and who I am in the story? We're the Israelites cowering in fear, saying, I cannot defeat this enemy. Someone needs to come and save us. We are facing an enemy of monstrous proportions. And if we go face him ourselves, we will get crushed, we will be killed. Our head will be the one that is lopped off. We don't stand a chance. But God, but God, he sent a champion to fight the battle for us. He sent us David. To be more accurate, he sent us the son of David, the God-man, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who humbled himself, who took on the form of, sinful flesh who was pure and perfect and sinless but who on paper was nothing just a Nazarite. nothing in him that was highly esteemed by man nothing impressive and this god man he went to the battle with our sin he took on our sin and picked up a cross the one that we should have been carrying and marched to face it. He stared down our enemy on behalf of the living God. And then he died. David, David didn't die. David won. But Jesus died. Did he lose? <laughs> no, because three days later, God did his biggest display of glory. By raising his son from the dead. Do you remember how David cut off Goliath's head? He didn't have a sword. So he went over there and he took the enemy's sword, the thing that the enemy uses to kill everybody, and then killed the enemy. The enemy, Satan, uses death. And God used death to chop off his head when he rose from the dead. That's amazing. So that now if you believe in him and if you turn away from your sins, you don't have to face Goliath. He's already been defeated and you will be saved and you will dwell with him for eternity. You're God king. I can't wait to meet David. (laughs) I love David. I can't wait to meet Jesus, the perfect, the true and better David. It's going to be glorious. You can be saved from your adversary and have everlasting life. So, follow the shepherd king. Take refuge in him by faith. He will deliver you from every evil and bring you safely into his kingdom on the final day. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you are glorious. Help us to have zeal for your name. Help us to have faith and help us to see and bask in the glory of your name and give us a heart of longing as we look forward to meeting the shepherd king face to face. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.